0: Hello and welcome to another episode of This Is HCD. My name is Gerry Scullion and I'm a human-centred design practitioner now based in Dublin, Ireland. As some of you will probably know, up until recently I was based in Sydney and in my last few months in my time in Australia, I caught up with my next guest, Faruk Avdi, right next to the famous Bondi Beach. In this episode, we discuss what role, if any, can technology play in the support of people suffering with mental health. But before we jump in, I want to do two things. The first is I want to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians of the land where we met whilst recording and pay respect to their elders, both past and present. The second is I wanted to give you a little bit of context on the topic in this episode. So I'll start by telling you a little bit about bipolar disorder, once called manic depression. Bipolar disorder is a medical condition which affects the brain and in many cases causes extreme mood changes. Someone with this disorder can be very high and overexcited or very low and depressed often with periods of normal moods in between. Up to 2% of people or 460,000 adults in Australia experience the symptoms of bipolar disorder and one of those symptoms is mania which can be experienced as euphoric by some but also highly distressing for others leading at times to devastating consequences. So destructive mania can be difficult to contain once in full flight. And much emphasis is therefore put on preventing it from occurring when signs or signals emerge. Now Farouk worked for SANE Australia and is a mental health organisation working to help people living with complex mental illnesses. SANE engaged with Farouk to design and lead the delivery of a service that seeks to help people identify the potential onset of mania and in the hope that technology may provide new means of helping people stay safe. This is a fantastic episode, so let's jump straight in. Farouk, thank you so much for spending some time with us, and uh, welcome to the This Is HCD podcast.
1: Thank you, Jerry. My great pleasure to be here.
0: Farouk, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into design.
1: I, I got into design around 1998, when the web was just really starting to... Intrude into people's imaginations in a, in a strong way. Mm. I know that's not true for the technologists and the others who were working on it at the time, but in the popular imagination it was sort of still very young at that point in time. So I was one of the, um, the later comers there. But um, I started writing about uh, technology to begin with. I, I'd been working as a kind of journalist come media campaigner for mm. not-for-profits for several years prior to that point in time and uh, the web seemed a great way to communicate and to connect with people around the world. So I went off and I was freelancing uh, as a writer uh, for a year, uh, writing about technology uh, for a magazine called Desktop Magazine, and then that gave me the kind of uh, momentum, I guess, uh, along with some study, to go for a role with a software development company and work on what they called um, online simulations, training simulations, uh, for business purposes, which were multi-branching, multilinear kinds of stories. So
0: today we are going to be discussing about your role in SANE Australia. and uh, We're going to be discussing how can technology assist people living with mental illness, and it's such an important topic. So tell us a little, little bit about your work that you're doing with SANE at the moment.
1: The work I'm currently doing with SANE is on the uh, SANE Bipolar app, on the non-clinical trial of that particular app. That's one of uh, three or four major projects that I've done with SANE over the last several Mm. years. So this this is the last one. The earlier ones included the online community, SANE forums, as well as uh, a redesign of their website and also a uh, design development of a native app for their online communities as well.
0: So... As a disclaimer, myself and Frook have actually done some work together over the years, and I know from reading online, um, it seems to be that mental health problems are increasing. Have they always been there, or are we just getting better at detection? What do you think?
1: I'm not so sure that mental health of the community is deteriorating per se. Uh, I think that the picture is varied, and uh, uh, from what I can tell anyway. When I look at um, different articles online, etc., you know, sometimes it seems the statistics are going in the right way, sometimes not. But either way, there's a substantial issue in the community. You know, one in five people in Australia are said to experience some kind of uh, serious form of uh, mental illness or distress in their lifetime, uh, at least once. And uh, at any given time, there are literally millions of people who are living with something that's quite a burden for them mm-hmm. and that they could certainly use some help with. In terms of the, the reliability of those sorts of statistics and, that we see and, and even diagnoses, I guess that one thing that I noticed is that the whole topic of modern mental health or mental health care seems to be pretty young uh, compared to physical health. The history of physical health goes back a very long way in terms of um, the science and uh, the learning associated with um, human physical health. But mental health as a topic really only seems to be, like in a way, you know, very young, 120, 150 years old, you know, somewhere around the time of Freud, give or take 30 or 40 years. Yeah. And um, so that means that, that a lot of the understandings, are, I think, are, are crude by comparison to our detailed knowledge of material matters you know, combined with the complexity of science not really being able to dig into what the mind actually is, you know, because it's immaterial. So statistics and understandings bounce about quite a lot in terms of, uh, you know, what constitutes mental health, what doesn't, what constitutes a particular diagnosis, what doesn't, and uh, how everyone in the world is actually faring against these sort of things.
0: You you were mentioned earlier before we started recording about the, the bipolar app. Where that came from and where it originated, and, and tell us about the product itself.
1: Well, that's a hugely exciting project, Jerry. The, it came from a, basically a, a greenfields brief from the executive of the organisation to say, "Look, we need to help people with bipolar disorder." Or, you know, that's what we'd like to do. Amongst the other people that that helps, got some money. That's available, a small amount of money. You know, what can you do with it? Yeah, and so it was that broad, and uh, so i a nice it, email to get. Oh, it was fantastic, it, and and so of course, you know, so the first thing I did was went out and I, I looked at, and this was back in what twenty fifteen, I think. Looked at what else was out there, you know, yeah. like did as much research as I could, found out as much as I could about similar services, uh, similar you know, research papers, um, uh, university efforts, etc. Found a few that were doing some interesting things, um, but in the process. Also took a greater, deeper dive into mobile technologies themselves, and realised that I needed some help, and so that was a, a great opportunity to build a, a partnership with a, a fellow called Dr Rod Farmer, uh, okay. who, who was then uh, the general manager at uh, Isobar Sydney. Yeah, and uh,
0: I think he's at McKinsey now. Yeah, he's yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. he's now at
1: McKinsey. Uh, so Rod, uh, Rod is a, a leading expert in Australia in design and, and technology when it comes to mobile uh, services and, and a range of other things. But uh, so Rod and I had worked uh, together previously, and so I thought, yeah, we well, we'll see if Rod's interested in um, kicking this one around, and he was. And so that was great. So I had a, a sort of a, a pro bono design buddy uh, mm-hmm. uh, to work with just in that early kind of research phase. And then there was another person that became involved, and I can't uh, name them because okay. they wish to remain anonymous. That's fine. Um, but this person also has design expertise and they live with bipolar disorder. Uh, so bringing that person on board was huge because that person mm-hmm. was able to bring a lot of first-hand personal insight.
0: Massive. Uh, massive. And yeah. plus
1: a design letterate as well. Yeah. so, so they can so speak was the huge. language. Yeah, so the three of us started to, to look at the terrain... I meanwhile developed another partnership as well. I reached out to one of SANE's clinical advisory group, Professor Philip Mitchell, and he's the head of psychiatry at the University of New South Wales here in Sydney. And Phil was also available to kindly help with pointing us towards some very solid literature about bipolar and throughout the project in terms of validating certain ideas that we may have had, certain hunches, and helping us refine our various concepts. So the three of us looked at mobile technologies, looked at the bipolar disorder itself, various symptoms, and started to try and looked at the highest kind of impact areas, looked at the areas in terms of bipolar disorder that had the greatest evidentiary basis, Below them. Was, uh, that, was that data kept within SAIN? Uh, that, no, that data actually um, I encountered in a conference that I attended uh, in Sydney. It was a, forgive me, I, I, I can't remember the name I'll of it. I'll drop the conference. it into the show notes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, 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 yeah that, that's right. Uh, but it was at uh, Sydney University and it was, uh, I think, late in 2016. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a weekend conference and they had um, some experts from all around the world, including some Australian experts. Phil Mitchell again, Professor mm-hmm. Phil Mitchell was there, as well as Ian Hickey. Um, And anyhow, the one key thing I took away from that conference was that it certainly seemed that the diagnosis of bipolar disorder itself was still kind of a bit problematic on the one hand, but on the other hand, uh, what they could be sure of uh, with the empirical evidence was that, that mania was very clearly an issue for certain people and that depression very clearly was an issue for certain people as well. And that for certain sets of people, they came together so thus the the bipolar, so a number of people experience the two of them and often one after the other. Wow. Um, So that was useful information as well. Because so much has been done on depression uh, or is focused on helping with depression in Australia, we looked at mania as a particular problem and we were looking for something that might have an empirical tell, something that we might be able to infer or detect via other kind of signals mm. um, uh, using the, the rich array of sensing and recording abilities that are found on a contemporary mobile. And so mania is what we chose to focus in on. And not mania once it's kind of full-blown. Really what we wanted to focus on was the potential onset of mania so that we could actually intervene at a point or give people in that situation, both someone living with bipolar and maybe others who who are in loving relationship to them, to give those people an opportunity to take some action on trying to prevent the full-blown no. onset of mania. When I'm talking about mania here, also I'm talking about um, mania that's experienced as distressing, not mania that's experienced as a good thing or, no. as, or as euphoric.
0: Yeah, you know,
1: There are certainly some people out there that, that experience mania and they really enjoy it, and there's a, a smaller set that have no other... Kind of consequence, and that's just like you know. Well, that's fantastic for them, but yeah. there are, there are other people who experience mania, and they experience it in a very distressing way, and it can express itself um, in you know, some situations. some of the destruction yeah. can be. Like it can make them super prone to taking uh, drugs and a lot of them, or or drinking vast amounts of alcohol, or it can make them extremely sexually promiscuous, or massively irritable in a in a very violent and eruptive way, not necessarily physically violent, but emotionally uh, violent. Yeah. Uh, Or they can uh, mania can express itself as gambling, like you know huge gambling binges where life savings are lost, or, or or obsessive game playing online game playing, you know, where a person sinks thousands of dollars into buying tokens to get to the next level of a game and plays a game straight up for 48 hours and a whole heap of potentially dangerous... An array of problems. uh, An array depending on the person and depending on how it influences them. And then there there are other longer term, more difficult to describe kind of aspects of, of lower-level mania called hypermania. But okay. anyway, leave that to the side for the moment. So we focused in on something that we could listen to or potentially infer uh, from behaviour. Um, so what kind uh, of
0: behaviour are we talking about?
1: We were thinking about mobile uh, technology and we were thinking about the ubiquitous presence that a mobile device has in, in somebody's life these days mm-hmm. and all of the senses that, that it's got. And so we know that, for example, mobiles can uh, tell where they are They can tell when they're moving and how fast they're moving and what cadence they're moving. We know that mobiles uh, can tell things like um, the luminosity of a room and that's before you get to what what it can hear and what it can sense in terms of um, the interactions that occur with it as a device as well as the interactions that happen with certain types of apps. So the kinds of things that we could listen to in terms of people potentially experiencing the onset of mania, really what we were what we were going to look for were a change in pattern fundamentally. Mm-hmm. So so a change in pattern where, where a person might have been interacting with their phone to X volume, X times a day, with X intensity in terms of, you know, say the numbers of texts sent or the number of phone calls taken and the time uh, that they were doing things. We could listen to all of those variables and infer a pattern when they were, well... Yeah. when they felt that they were well yeah. and to see a shift in that pattern to when they felt that they weren't well or experiencing mania.
0: So how would it work, for, Like, So would somebody do an installation of this app and give permissions then for it to kind of listen? Yeah, that well, then,
1: then that's correct. So we managed with the kind and very generous support of Gandalf Philanthropy, which is a philanthropic organisation in Australia. Uh, SANE was able to uh, fund a essentially a minimum viable product a version of this service and a non, what we called a non-clinical trial, Absolutely. that ran for three months until the end of last year, okay. uh, 2017, and so during this period, people basically they registered their interest uh, for the service. Then, because of uh, we needed to learn from the experience, and we had like I think we had uh, around 320, 330 people register for it, which uh, was an implied. Kind of with partners was a potential 600 people to participate okay. in the trial.
0: So, those 330 people were their sufferers of bipolar disorder?
1: They were indicating that they were living with bipolar okay. disorder. That, and that's, that's correct. And, and we put them through a pre trial survey, which was quite extensive, and, and we saw some numbers drop off uh, during that period. Meanwhile, we did some uh, design research, and so we were still designing the, the app, so that there was some contextual inquiry, some, a little bit of usability testing. Uh, plenty of participatory design with um, involving a design partner, uh, the firm Mobile Experience, Oliver Videlec's mm-hmm. uh, crew there, and Jay Montoni uh, worked with us. And uh, also, we got the a company called the Project Factory involved uh, to do the build, and they're based in Sydney here as well. So, mm-hmm. there was uh, quite a bit of participatory design there whilst um, these other sign up type events were occurring. And once we had the app ready, which was a bit later than we expected, uh, then we let people know that they could download it from Google Play. So they installed it from Google Play uh, via their Android device because it was Android was um, the only platform that we could listen to in the way that we needed to. Uh, Apple was far more of a closed shop, yeah. uh, iOS. So yeah, it was download, install from Google Play and then go through uh, an onboarding process and, and part of that onboarding was to provide the app with a series of permissions to to be able to listen to certain things. Wow.
0: So what what were the key learnings? Like what did you learn after the three months of the, the trial?
1: Well, still working my way through the and data, I, literally. <laughs> as, you've uh, got you know, the data as, in front yeah, of you. Yeah, I've got the data in front of me right now and, and there's reams of it, you know. But look... There were learnings in a a multiple of categories. There were were learnings in terms of the design of the service. There were learnings in terms of the build. There were learnings in terms of how people were using it. The the chief purpose of the MVP in so many respects was uh, in typical lean kind of fashion. Hypothesis,
0: truly. Exactly.
1: We We were trying to see if our value hypotheses were accurate. And I think there's enough evidence to say very soundly that they were. Our value hypotheses were accurate but uh, there's still a lot of other stuff in there that we need to process.
0: A lot of synthesis and analysis probably to be done. It's going to be quite a rich data set, I imagine, after three months with 330 people.
1: Absolutely. Well, it wasn't 330 people that went through into downloading the app. By By the time we got to releasing the app, there was a gap and... We got some attrition in terms of the, the length of the survey but also people realising that Android was actually the platform and not <laughs> iOS yeah. and, and despite us you know, saying that over and over in various forms, people still kind of didn't get it right up until the moment yeah. of needing to download it. So what was but, the outcome?
0: Just, just to touch on the actual MVP. So someone installs it, um, it does listening and um, watches for your behavioural shifts... What's the outcome for the user? What do they get? Do they get alerts, or what does that look like?
1: Yeah, so in the MVP, they got basically the ability to look at their data in uh, different time aggregates, so of a month, of a week, and of a day. And the day view was very detailed, and they could see their basically um, a visualised report on their activity, their interaction during the day, and their their interactive pattern and the intensity of what was going on. And as part of that, also part of the setup. Uh, we got them to indicate certain things about their preferences for sleep and rest, and mainly, and uh, we could report back on that, comparing the data with those preferences. Wow. And we could also send alerts on that basis. Now, here I can, I can mention the partner component. So, yeah. so the app was designed on the basis of two insights. One was the rather more obvious one about the ubiquity of mobile devices, but also, you know, us identifying a, a potential place of intervention in the cycle of living with bipolar disorder of that moment of the potential onset of mania. So that was one insight. The other insight, however, and this came out of the user experience research that we did, Hmm. but also out of uh, a series, a wide range of other readings that I had done and uh, also that intersected with a series of readings that Rod had done as well. Um, The concept of dialogue, the concept of relationship. The insight essentially is that, that we're in relationship the degree to which we're in relationship and feel good about those relationships is a, a very big part of our sense of distress or non-distress in life, mm-hmm. or sense of well-being or non-well-being. Yeah. And a lot of the detrimental, the distressing impacts of uh, mania with folks living with that occurred in the area of relationship as well. So work relationships or interpersonal relationships or uh, if you wanted to look at it another way, relationship with self. So out of that, we constructed uh, a social dimension to the service whereby the person or the primary user living with bipolar disorder could share the app data in its entirety, and including its notifications with one or more other people uh, in their life. Now, fully in control of that. Yeah. Uh, they could switch it off at any given time, but they could share that if they wanted to. Wow. So, so the person who was a partner in the trial, so we could only accommodate one person for the MVP but uh, that person would also download the app. They'd have a particular trial ID that was associated with their primary user or the the person living with bipolar disorder, and they would see exactly the same data and get exactly the same alerts and notifications.
0: Right, that sounds fascinating. That That sounds really amazing. And presumably they could then share that with their their doctor or their...
1: That's, psychologist. That's correct. They, they could export the data at the end of the trial, but uh, let's imagine that it's a service out in the wild should the yeah. be fortunate enough to go the next step with this, which I, I truly hope they can. Then once it's a full-blown service, then, yes, that data would be made available to clinicians, again, under the control of the person, whose data it was, yeah. uh, living with bipolar disorder, they could share that historical data with their clinicians and um, and various ways of looking at it as well.
0: So there's a whole huge potential there for um, spanning into that, whole kind of psychologists being able to moderate and manage multiple people. And
1: Well, I don't know about the, moder- the word moderate there. I mean, so it's not like the forums in that sense. So, oh, okay. so, yeah. you know, and there are kind of interesting legal and duty of care issues that emerge, sure. which we looked at very carefully with some lawyers. And also a couple of clinicians in terms of mm. a person sharing their data real time with their clinician. What does that mean from a duty of care perspective? If yeah. they, if that clinician sees a shift of, of patterns, you know, who's responsible exactly? Yeah. You so you know, it could be that that sharing it historically is the better way to go. Yeah. Uh, you know, where where it's all happened in the past. But I can take that into my clinician or and a- uh, analyze and, it together. And, yeah, and we can talk about it together. What were you doing and at that time? That, that's and, that's right. Yeah, yeah. How did that make you feel?
0: Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you'd like to be part of the conversation or community, hop on over to thisishcd.com, where you can request to join the Slack channel and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers around the world. Thanks for listening and see you next time.